Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. Here we go, guys. Food plot season Man, is on top of it us. It is here, buddy, 100%. So our, our friends up north, they they probably got theirs in the ground, mid to the, middle of the country. They're planting. Some have their plots in the ground. But if you're in the yeah, deep south. I don't know. I'm telling you. It's a little hot. It's Yeah. It's like a lot of things in life. Like someone says, man, you know, it's Christmas. Like, man. It doesn't feel like it. That's why if you said it's food plot season. It does not feel like it. Mm-mm. It is hot outside. It feels like death to a food plot to me right now. We're getting ready. Planning. Yeah. My truck. And I know that's not the real temperature. And it was in the shade. But I got in it and it said 127. Oh, mm. my goodness. It's heating up out there yeah, today. It's like it? 100 and something. Probably the heat index is probably in the teens. Mm-hmm. 110 teens. It's, it's to- awful. It's hot, that's for sure. I hate this time of year. This is a last-ditch press, full-court press to, you know, get duck food in. So Yeah, we got about a week. It's friend. Well, you know. Week, week, 10 days. You know, we've done – I always said my cutoff is my, – my startup is 4th of July. My cutoff is Labor, Labor Day. Day. But I've done the week after Labor Day or even more. And, and other people that I don't know. And it has turned out, but you begin the crapshoot. Rolling the dice at that point with the shortness of the days or a potential uh, uh, early frost. Early, well, no, early frost will shut it down. Yeah, on, on those middle. Well, the army worms are everywhere right now too. So I'm sure. I mean, you get that's a given. Mm-hmm. Somebody who thinks they're going to grow a grassy like it. Uh, I talked to Tom. He planted some brown top millet for doves for me, and I didn't know who was going to surprise me. It's like, man, they wiped it out. And I was like, you don't plant millets. Mm-hmm. You're you're in fantasy land if you think you're just going to grow something without spraying for armyworms anymore. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, they're gonna find it. They gonna find it. Bronson's over there nodding his head. I think he's in agreement with y'all. I have the I have the bumps and bruises to prove it. Mm-hmm. Well, look, guys, let me let me kind of go around the room real quick and set up what what we're looking at. Dudley is through the magic of the internet is on Zoom with from us. the Aspen Grove. He's uh, apparently been quarantined. You're on the net. Wow. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So we have the intranet here in Starkville. Nice. Oh, really? Wow. We sure do. It's brand new. Well, how is your uh, quarantine going? It's going great. <laughs> uh, so, as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to go quarantine uh, 
out on some public land around here. <laughs> well, we oh, are yeah. we are saving phone numbers for you to return calls. Stay we hydrated. got a long long list of return calls. Stay hydrated, Wellington. Just, just give them just give them my cell phone number. Yeah, we will do, we will do that. And then looking around the room, we got Lanny over here who looks like. It's like is, I've been in the warehouse. You've been in the warehouse loading boxes. Yep. 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 Yeah. Now it's doing a little season. bit of everything. Yep. yep. So we got stuff going out, tractor supply, Bass Pro, everything. So Biologic's on the shelf it, out there. Yeah. If you're needing seed, that's where to go get it. And then Toxies. Locally, too, we got our, our warehouse sale coming up in the next, what, when, Mac? When we start a warehouse sale? So it'll be October the 28th through September the 8th. So Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. It can't about, be October. I mean, August. That's that. That's that. Eight, sixth grade education coming out. <laughs> that's, that's that heritage education. That's right. Okay. Oh, we'll take, let's go, take that from the top. Let's do it. Take two. Here. Take two. Mac, when is that sale going to be? So it'll be August the 28th through September the 8th. Nice. Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. Call us, 662-495-9292. Swing by. We'll get you loaded up on some seat. Loaded. Free shipping on everything. No way. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. No yeah. way. Y'all didn't get that by me. Yeah. Well, they're coming to pick it up. Okay. <laughs> my kind of shipping. Yeah. Right. So then on the guest couch, we've got two guys. Bronson Strickland's not even like a guest anymore. No. He's no, just right. here all the time. Dr. Bronson Strickland, Dr. Bishop State. Bronson Strickland. He was We're, our first. Wasn't he one of our first podcasts? The first guest. The first, was the first Numero one. uno. Yeah, he was. And then next to him, it's like a guy we've been hearing about for a long time, Luke Resup, who is from Pennsylvania, the of all PA. Places. He's the biggest guy that's ever walked yeah, in here. Yeah, and sat yeah, out. most Pennsylvania guys. What are you, guys six are foot six? No, I'm six four. Yeah, six four, but I'm skinny, so. Bobby, you're shrinking. He's so that a, makes it you look are taller. smaller. Yeah, he's a yeah, he's a big guy. Toxie was looking up to him. Toxie's a big guy. I looked up to a lot of people, Bobby. I look mm-hmm. up to Bronson too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Luke, we're excited to have you here. We're going to learn more about why you guys are here and. We're going to talk about some subjects that are real interesting to Very us. Very interesting. Yeah. Let us take care of just a little bit of business first. And, uh, Mac, uh, I'm going to talk about blood on the biologic just a second. What? Guys, hunt That's season already, has started. Did someone hit one with a car? I'm, Where? Uh, South Carolina, I'm seeing guys killing oh, some really yeah. big I forgot bucks about that. In uh, – uh, uh, Velvet. Some, I mean, some oh, really that's right. It's like August 15th. It's when mm-hmm. it yeah. Mm. I still remember going. To, I couldn't believe it when I found that out. And cousin Bob and I went over there and drove all night, got there right before August daylight. 15th. Yeah. And went bow hunting, not rifle hunting. You could. Yeah. That is, to this day, and I have seen some things, that is the most mosquitoes I have ever <laughs> encountered in my life. It was awful. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, so, guys, uh, you know, mossyoak.com is a great place to go and look for some informative articles now. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's a great place. So there's an article on hunting velvet bucks on mossyoak.com right now. And um, there's another good one I think it is pretty relevant to point out about tree stand safety. So guys can no start that. got to so. be safe. No question about it. So, uh, Mac, have you been seeing any big velvet deer? And sep- I, I've actually been getting a few photos from some friends, and there's a there's a couple a couple big ones I've seen running around. Uh, it's crazy. What's surprising to me is just how small some of these fawns are that I've been seeing in the neighborhood. I mean, look like squirrels running behind a doe. Our deer born so late. We were doing and, some some work last week, and just a lot of even twin fawns, but real small. No doubt about it. It's a direct correlation to whenever your "quote unquote" rut was. Yeah. What is it when you start? Is it two hundred two days, Bronson? That you back up? That, that's about two o five. Yeah, 
200 is a good number. We use 205. Should I ask Luke this question instead of I mean, get a more definitive answer? 201. Sure. <laughs> oh, excuse me. 201. <laughs> and I have. 201. So if you, when, you, when you're seeing those little, when they first start hitting the ground, right. yep. back up about 200 days. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So we were saying small phones, you know, last week. Oh, that's longer than that. Yeah. I bet you what the the last time we did a health check on our place, and it was a while ago, they range from December 5th to January 5th mm-hmm. here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it's a combination. He can tell us that if you don't manage your herd and you have too many does, it'll continue to kind of back up because they'll miss some and then so forth. But if you get that ratio back close to well, it's almost impossible one-to-one, but something close to that, you can, my understanding is you can actually bring it back a little bit. Is that right? They, they all get bred on their first estrous cycle. Yes. So they're not missing and going into their second. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So if we got a month when we did a health check, there were quite a few. And I'm, I don't know how many there were, but there were several. They were all the way to January 5th. Yeah. And, and that's normal. That's normal. Yeah. So. All right. One last thing. Mac, who is this episode brought to you by? So this episode is brought to you by LS Tractors. Ooh, oh, boom! Yeah. I've been. Oh, I don't want to. Even, I've seen a, some pictures. Oh of you my goodness! Once. You've been Frank yeah. Clover. What huh? was that um, Jimmy Buffett song? I'm in love for the first time with anything that moves. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's amazing. They are great, great tractors. Yeah, they really are. This is the first time I've run some, and just like you know, I sprayed in one. But this is the first time I've really put them to the test so far, and wow, they are so nice. They're not just well and well engineered, well thought out. Yeah, the people that know, yeah, tractors that have been around I'm six or eight now. That's but people really know equipment. Walk around and look under. It's like wow, you know, they've been really impressed. That's well built. Yes, they are. And let me they're, tell you what, they're well thought out too. I'll say that it may not be a big deal to a lot of people. I've had. Ten brands and by far the best air conditioner. Five star, five star air, air conditioner. conditioner. That's pretty important when right it's one hundred twenty-seven degrees outside. And that's honestly, pretty... that's the weak link on most tractors mm-hmm. because I mean, just think you you buy a great engineering and there's a great. I had let's face it, a bunch of great brands out there, but the things that fail are the stuff that maybe they don't do. You know. Yeah. Uh, he was so playing anyway, clever yeah. last week and you wouldn't even open the door. No. <laughs> It was like when, frost. When it was 127 degrees. <laughs> but, you know, they always, I've always been by our own place. Like, hey, you can drop it, that cab of that tractor, maybe if, if you tint the glass, maybe more than that. But right. you might can drop it, if you're lucky, 20 degrees from where it is outside with a really good air conditioner. And I'm just telling you, at 110, this one's like 68 inside. Mm-hmm. It's nice. It's it really, really nice. Oh, wow. Yep. Everything about it's well thought out, though. And I... And I'm sure modern tractors are getting better and better, but it is really well engineered. I mean, I'm so impressed. And we can move on, but that's yeah. the fact. That's yeah. good to hear. Good stuff. What else, Matt? Moultrie feeders and cedars. So, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Get duck food in the ground. It's time to be using those. Yes, it uh, is. Uh, that that Moultrie cedar with the electronic gate. It's, it's so great it's for planting duck ponds. You, know, we, you can't even imagine <clears throat> how many acres of stuff I've planted no, in one of those in right. the last – 10 years Lots. since they came out with it. It's good stuff. Well, and look, we did a, last week, we did a show on alpha toxin. And one of the things that we were able to show, Bronson kind of helped demonstrate this. If guys will feed correctly by the standards set by the MSU deer lab and, uh, and the, some of those spin feeders help protect and keep that corn dry. There's there. Some, some guys are going to feed corn. They're just going to do it. And when you do it, we're, we're saying, let's do it the way MSU 
the deer lab says, yes. do it. And sure. So that, that moisture feeder is a, it's a really good unit because it, I t- when, Lanny, you can set it to feed however long you want to, however many times, mm-hmm. you know, dozens of settings. Yeah. So it can well, go off four or five times a day. You, for don't, just a little you while. don't stay in business with the same product for 40 years or not improve and make great products. That's right. They've literally been around that long. They're, yeah. the, they're the pioneers in that. And, and, and they continue to innovate, which is impressive. We have a terrible time. If we use a feeder, it's, you know, two months worth in there. And within two weeks, the coons or the deer actually will raise up on their hindquarters and lick it and just all of it's gone. And so they just, they have this new one with like an electric fence. Literally, it will shock anything that touches it. I don't know if you've seen them. I forget what oh, they're yeah. called. I saw Dudley talk And about. I had one that we just leave behind the camp for wildlife. So we can just watch them out the window and stuff. And three months it lasted and still had stuff in it. Hmm. And that's because, totally because of that Moultrie yeah. cedar with the, you know, the electric, basically the electric fence around the spinner plate. XT is what that's yeah. called. Yep. They really work. Yeah. First in feeders, Moultrie. So we're real proud of that relationship. And we got one more, right? Yes. Yeah, so the last one is tractor supply where Ooh. you can go pick up your biologic seed. Good stuff. You know, you, you you know touch them all today, Mac. Yes, sir. Yeah. So it, I tell you what, right now, if you, if anybody mm-hmm. listening to this, that tractor supplies within a few, Miles of wherever they are, they're they're just yep. all over. But, Open on the weekend, but they've got uh, they've got some biologic and yep, got quick sow, got they, deer plot. They, they got some deer out. radish, don't they? They've got mm-hmm. deer radish and nice. green patch and green patch and BCP. No doubt about it. Yeah, I thought you used up all the BCP. No, they got some BCP. <laughs> I'm not so sure Bobby uses so much if he's not putting it in his cornflakes. Yeah, or I don't know what he's doing. He's talking about how big these does are on his place. I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, guys, tractor supply, multi feeders, and LS tractors. Those are three real important brands to us, and we appreciate they are indeed you supporting them. So, uh, all right, let's turn our attention. What we kind of had a little meeting about this, and I'm I'm looking at these guys over here on the couch. What we want to talk about is kind of the, you know, food plots. Guys have been planting food plots for a long time. And doing it one way. And then we look to the farming industry for suggestions of ways to improve. But so we kind of want to talk about what's going on right now and what the future looks like. And when and the, we had this conversation, Bronson said, well, I've got a Ph.D. student. Why don't you tell us what you guys are? What the, what's the plan here? Well, the, the plan. So for the last uh, couple of years, well, for a lot longer but certainly me, I've been paying attention to the regenerative agriculture movement. And so what we decided to do, there's been a lot of claims and a lot of people talking about it, but we couldn't find where someone had uh, evaluated it um, from like a university perspective relative to wildlife food plots. So that's literally what what we decided to do was a way to compare regenerative, excuse me, regenerative agriculture techniques to conventional techniques. And um, Luke, I'll let you, if this is the right time, maybe you want to go into when we sat down and we decided how are we going to evaluate it, we came up with some metrics Mm -hmm. that we thought were going to be most important to people. And so why don't you run through that? Yeah, so there's four or five metrics that we think are most important from, A, a scientific perspective, you know, to empirically and critically evaluate the data. But B, and probably most importantly, metrics that are most important to hunters, to landowners, to land managers, to food plotters. 
And so kind of starting at from the ground up, literally, um, the first thing we're looking at is soil. How do regenerative versus conventional management techniques impact the soil? The next is the plants. How do uh, how does plant quality, so crude protein content, calcium content, phosphorus, all the minerals that we traditionally think about, how does that change by management approach and plant biomass? So when you are pouring the fertilizer to your food plot and controlling competition with herbicides, are you getting more biomass production out of your food plot than if you are not using those? Mm-hmm. And once I get through this list, I'll kind of back up and talk about what we mean when we say regenerative and what we mean when we say conventional. Um, so we got the soil, we got the plants. Number three, and this is where for most hunters is really going to hit home. It's the critters. How do deer and turkey respond to these different management techniques? Are deer spending more time in a regenerative food plot than in a conventional food plot? And for the purposes of our experiment that we're conducting, keep in mind that uh, we've got study sites in three states. We're in Mississippi, we're in Tennessee, and then we're up in northern Missouri. And on all of our study sites, our regenerative food plots are literally in the same field as our conventional food plots. Side by side. Side by side. Yeah. Randomly, we randomly chose which uh, food plot was going to get the conventional treatment, which one was going to get the regenerative treatment. So monitoring deer and turkey use with trail cameras, you know, is old school. That's something that uh, we are able to do in-house. Don't need to send off, you know, complicated samples to a lab and analyze. We're just using trail cameras. Um, and then... The last big one is economics. How do how does it impact your pocketbook when you're implementing a regenerative program versus a conventional program? So that's the big, you know, uh, main metrics that we're going to be looking at throughout the course of this project. Now, let me back up a minute and describe exactly what we mean when we say regenerative food plotting versus conventional food plotting. And regenerative, it's kind of a catch-all, it's become a catch-all term in the last few years for, I mean, people use it interchangeably with organic and with conservation agriculture, and then you got regenerative. So what does all of that mean? So for the purposes of our project, when we say regenerative, we are doing our darndest to follow the principles of soil health that the experts, the ag experts, the livestock experts who are, you know, predominantly in the ag space, not as much food plotting, but the principles of soil health that lay, that they lay out in terms of what define regenerative management. And that is minimizing uh, synthetic inputs. So that includes herbicide and fertilizer. And we can get into more in the why of we'd be doing why we'd want to do this later. But uh, minimizing synthetic inputs, you're minimizing uh, soil disturbance. So you're keeping a living root system in the soil 365 days out of the year or as much as possible and keeping a thatch on top of the soil. Um, plant diversity is a big one because each plant species is interacting in a unique way with the soil microbial environment, with the fungal environment, um, which in turn impacts the adjacent plants in a unique way. Um, So we've got reducing synthetic inputs, uh, reducing or eliminating tillage, keeping roots in the ground 365 or as much as possible, uh, diversity, plant diversity, and then the other big one from an ag perspective is animal integration. So, you know, in the livestock world, that just means you're probably mob grazing a pasture or your mob, you could even be grazing in a crop field after the crops have been harvested or your cover crop. For us, that's obviously just deer and turkeys. So 
those are the those are the big things that define regenerative food plotting. Now, conventional is essentially just the opposite of that. We're using um, synthetic inputs. We're using herbicide to control competition prior to planting and post planting. So pre emergence and post emergence herbicide applications. We are following soil tests. Um, we're making soil amendment applications up to two times per year. Um, we're using not single species blends, but it's just traditional food plot blends. You know, mm-hmm. we've got in our cool season plots, we've got a cereal and a couple clovers. Um, and generally speaking, you know, we've got different treatments, but the crux of our conventional treatments include just a cool season food plot planting. So it'll plant it in the cool season, you know, in the next month or so, and it'll produce, and then it'll be fallow next summer. And then the next thing that we plant will be the cool season plot into that next year. And then adjacent, we've got a conventional warm season treatment. And that one will be fallow during the cool season. So that's kind of just the rough framework mm-hmm. of our treatment design. So w- one last question before we turn. I'm going to look at Dudley first with a question. But mm-hmm. th- you're in, you're just getting started with this, and this is going to take four years. And this is your Ph.D., basically. Yes, sir. That's correct. Well, I tell you what, you, it, it sounds like you, Bronson, you, found, you, you guys found somebody that it's going to be very dedicated to this. He's very sounds very interested and passionate about it. And from uh, from what I can gather, I don't think you really care one way or another. You just want to know the truth. What what comes out of this? Yeah, I think the most important thing for us and for anybody that's consuming the information we put out at the end of this project, most important thing is that throughout the entire course of this experiment, from the conception of the idea all the way through till the very end when we're writing peer-reviewed publications about this, it's that we did not come into this comparing regenerative versus conventional food plotting with an objective to prove that one is better than the other. There is no, none of us, no, no one involved in this project is like, we want to prove that conventional is the best way. We want to prove that regenerative is the best way. We are, to the very best of our ability, objectively evaluating these different management techniques, and we'll let the data tell us and the listeners, whoever's following along, what the best um, management approach is for their situation. And it very well may be that at the end of the day, we um, kind of have a you know, a flow chart that someone can work through and says, if you're in this situation with these limitations and these are your objectives, this is the best way to go. But if you're over here, maybe you should go a different way. So I don't think, you know, I don't foresee this being something where we're like, this is the gospel. This is how you have to do it. This is the only way to get good results. I mean, that's clearly not going to be the case because that's not the case with really anything that we do. You would predict there's going to be trade-offs and pros and cons, Mm -hmm. and we're just going to measure them all and lay it out there and let the consumer or the food plotter decide, this looks like it will work best for me based on my objectives, based on what I want, based on my equipment, et cetera. That's really all we want to do is to fully explain how to do it, to measure everything, and then publish it and put it out there for people to decide for themselves. Sure. Dudley, you want to fire the first question? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been interested in this a while. Um, and like Luke was saying, you know, you can compare a lot of this to, you know, some of the more organic methods people have used in the past. Uh, it's just really fascinating. But uh, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, where in the world has this, you know, has this been going on? 
Um, and what kind of scale? I mean, obviously, there's farmers that are getting good results in, in different parts of the world. Um, where do you see more of it? Uh, I don't see a whole lot of it down here in the South. Uh, but so I know that's kind of a long question. Well, I think it's generally regard. There are cert- certainly regions of the country where regenerative practices are more predominant than others, but generally it's in the single digits in terms of acreage or in the, you know, if you're looking at the number of farmers out there, it's in the single digits that are practicing regenerative wow. techniques. Now, but you mean <clears throat> percentages? Yeah. Single oh, I thought digit. you meant numerically only single digits. I was like, that's not very many yeah. people. New, yeah, percentage-wise. <laughs> right. So like right. two, three, five so percent, whatever. Would you, would you consider if like somebody did just a little bit of this, maybe even testing it, wanting to make it more sustainable for them, would, that, would you consider them to be one if they use the technique at all, even if they didn't go across the board? Yeah, I think absolutely okay. because there's no – I don't – you know, in all the reading and the background research that we've been trying to do, we've not come across a single, you know, objective definition of this is what regenerative is. Right. So, you know, some people, they cut back on their use of um, herbicides or cut back on their use of fertilizer, but they're still using herbicide. They're still using fertilizer. They're still using tillage. And they are more regenerative than maybe a traditional yeah. It's hardcore conventional I think food it's, water. I think it's smart, and I think it's admirable that there you can't really define it because, honestly, for it to be smart to me, listen to you, it would be more of an ideal that everybody should shoot for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that way, and they can get whatever they in whatever form they can move the ball down the field in that direction. It's a positive, you know, and maybe they don't get but to the fifty yard line, but that's a that's compared to most of the world. That's a long way. Well, yeah, I was I was just going to say that this, in my mind, seems to have evolved from the no-till farmers mm-hmm. that were getting tired of spending the money on herbicides, and it seems like uh, they collectively came up with this uh, implement called a crimper, where they're it looks like a big roller. But it damages the stalk of of whatever plant you're trying to terminate. And you crimp it at the proper time. And all that vegetation, more or less, is laid down flat. And it doesn't come back to life. But then you can drill directly into it because it's all laying in the same direction. Uh, And am I kind of right? That's where it evolved from when we swapped from herbicides to using this crimping technique. I would say, Dudley, that that's one component of it. I mean, that's the the termination aspect of it. Um, But but it's also coming from the perspective of uh, tillage, period. Um, And then, okay, if we're not going to till, how do we terminate? And that's where the roller crimper came from. But but then it's also looking at, um, you know, the, the cover crops is a component of it you know, as well. Um, it's the interaction of different plants, multiple different species, and how they complement each other is an aspect of it. So uh, all of these points together are feeding into what we call regenerative agriculture. And this is probably an oversimplification, but here's one way I think about it. Uh, very generally, conventional agriculture, you're essentially manipulating everything the soil, the tillage, and you're adding the chemistry 
you're adding along with what exists in the soil, but you're having to amend. Whereas with regenerative, you're essentially manipulating the species of plants that are planted and the soil microbiome, the soil ecology and biology is what's providing the, the nutrients needed for those plants to grow. So that's a big difference. There are no amendments strictly under regenerative agriculture. Wow. You are harvesting all of that that exists in the soil and making it bioavailable to those plants. Now, you might say, well, if you're making a living, how, how can you compete? Because one of the knocks on a regenerative you know, side of things is you're not going to have the yield but the big deal is you may not you may only produce 70 or 80 percent of the yield, but you have no inputs. So well, yeah, then savings wise, you save a yeah, lot of money from no inputs. And what we don't know till down the road, um, the buzzword today, and it's a great it's a buzzword for me with the business sustainability. And, I, you know, that word's become so much a part of the culture today and especially mm-hmm. in even businesses, farming, everything. So, um you said you use the word whatever seventy or eighty percent, but what are you doing to sustain that? If you've improved the soil health in a natural, organic way, which means kind of just helping it on its own, so to speak, then you've made your place and your dirt and your you know more stable and strong long term. And not it's like I hate to say this, but you know the people that are so dependent on someone else to live and get money or food or anything, as opposed to Take, being able to, you know, be strong enough to take care of yourself, that type of thing. And so I see it uh, more and more, I think, in terms of not overdoing it now. You know, I'm, I'm going to be balanced in my approach to a lot of those things. But I can definitely see why it will be. And, and the biggest interesting thing, we've known about this, Lanny, maybe 10 years, the whole concept of the soil microbiomes and the mm-hmm. enzymes and the, with the whole, you know, the living soil that's going on and so much beyond just adding those three elements to it. And so um, it's so com- – I mean, you know, once we listen to people like y'all, it's so complex. Oh, and yes. everywhere you go is different, you know. Every pH, soil type, you know, uh, clay, uh, you know, whatever, all the different soil, silty, loamy, all of those. Uh, and it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean <clears> – <throat> It's so complex. It's a, it, it is it's not. It, I mean, the average person does not understand. It is so complex. And I mean, you don't have to understand everything. But one of my favorite little sayings about life and business is like, you need to be sure you know what you don't know, and it'll help you a lot. <laughs> You've heard me, Lenny, say me. Oh, yeah. tell him to, but that's the same way with this. You, if you understand, it's just this world is so much more complex than we can just about comprehend, especially the soil. I think it'll end up making you better and thinking instead of just thinking it's so simple, you know, put out whatever triple 13 and plant this and do it Mm -hmm. a year after year after year after year. So it's fascinating to me. So yeah, I think it can be very overwhelming. It's very overwhelming for me trying to wrap my head around, you know, just a percentage, a fraction of the complexity of the soil ecology and how it's interacting with the plants and how it's interacting with the deer. And I mean, it just gets away from me very quickly, but I think the, um, what, what helps me sleep at night. And I think depending on, you know, what results from our project indicate and what's going to help the, you know, average landowner hunter food plotter sleep at night, we don't need to understand all of the ins and outs and the complexities of 
what is happening and the mechanisms and all of the interactions. But if we're, if we establish and demonstrate that these ecological principles, these food plot management principles work at scale, not just on one study site, but on the majority of the study sites that we're evaluating, if it works, then it works. And you don't necessarily need to understand all the complexities, which is, you know, very, you know, uh, liberating in my mind because there's no Mm -hmm. way any of us are going to. You know, I mean, even when you talk to people who have a PhD in soil microbiology, they will very readily admit that there's things going on that they don't have a clue about. Mac, you raising your hand? I do. One one thing that I'm curious about, just from looking at this from a 30,000 foot view, do you, the regenerative ag approach, would that be more time consuming than the conventional ag or would, would you think you'd spend the same amount of time on each food plot? Definitely the way that when we operate under our definition of regenerative agriculture, and we are trying to do this to the T of the way that the regen experts say to do, it. we're trying to do it to the T, but I can tell you just from, you know, doing this for the last several months, being in the first year of this project, we're in the first year of a three to four year project right now, but I've spent far less time on the regenerative food plots than I have on the conventional food plots. Hmm. And I mean, think about it with the regenerative food plot, you were making a pass with the crimper and you're making a pass with the drill for planting. And then by and large, with few exceptions, you're not touching that food plot again until you're planting the next incoming crop. With the conventional plot, you got to do a burn down herbicide application. You got to make X number of passes with a disc. You got to, depending on what you're planting, you spray a pre-emergence herbicide application after you disc and after you plant. And then once your crop comes up, you got to control weeds. And so you make one, two, if you're planting in the warm season, just say you're cowpeas, deer vetch, whatever, you might spray three or four times with clefidin. And so right there, we're at seven, eight, nine passes for one planting, diesel fuel, wear and tear on equipment, your time versus regenerative, you know, you make two passes. But the question is what results, and this is what's going to kind of come out of the economics portion of the study. It's just not how much you're spending on equipment, on diesel fuel. It's what is your return? What return are you getting out of Mm -hmm. what you're spending? So how many pounds of crude protein per acre are you getting per gallon of diesel fuel? You know what I mean? Yeah. How many deer visits per day are you getting in the conventional versus the regenerative food plot? You know, a lot of guys, uh, the financial investment required, the initial startup financial investment required to embark on this regenerative regenerative journey is huge. You know what I mean? If you're going to follow it to the T, you're going to use a no-till drill, you're going to use a crimper, you're not going to disc, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if you can get as good or better results with regenerative than conventional, it's going to be worth it to a lot of people. But some people, it doesn't matter how good of results you get with either of the techniques. They can only afford to do it one way, and there is nothing wrong with that. I mean, it all depends on your objectives and what your limitations are. If you can afford, if you can only afford to, you know, uh, spread 100 and 120 pounds of wheat per acre in the fall and you're not doing warm season plots, you're not doing all the herbicide applications, you're just using an ATV to do it. There's nothing wrong with that. And we're not here to tell you that even if, you know, there are things about regenerative that are better, we're not here to tell you that 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 the way that they're doing it is wrong because it's not. It's all based on objectives and what your limitations are. So I'm going to look at you like uh, this is like a 
sixth grade question, but are the regenerative guys worried about their pH like the traditional guy is? And, and are you needing to add lime at all? Is that is it, does that come into this equation on the regen also? <clears throat> to, to my knowledge, it, it does not. And that is, again, relying on from, from that soil and the underlying pH and the soil constituents, minerals, etc., it's going to be the microbial community that develops there is, is going to basically still enable the release of nutrients. So one of the big deals we have about pH is that uh, minerals are not available. They are bound up. But when the biology and ecology is working, and, and basically soil microbes and plant root exudates are swapping favors, they basically will start giving uh, the plant will give the bacteria and microbes carbohydrates and the microbes in return will yield the soil mineral and make it available. Hmm. It's the same relationship we see with legumes and we inoculate with the rhizobia bacteria uh, to get nitrogen. That's just one example. But there are a lot of other examples for other soil minerals that make them bioavailable to those plants. So most of the ones, at least correct me if I'm wrong, if you've heard differently, soil pH is not a big concern at all in the regen system. Have you heard differently? No, I think that's that's accurate. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I guess unless there's an extreme, you know, and if it's an extreme, you're probably not going to choose that for a site anyway, because you can tell it's not productive. And again, I mean, there there <clears> are certainly, probably listening to this podcast, as soon as it drops, there are going to be regen farmers, food plotters, whatever, that say, wait a minute, I am concerned with pH for X, Y, and Z reasons. So, you know, there, there are so many different ways to slice and dice what regenerative is that there may be, you know, some people that are doing regen to a T, except that they're liming to get their pH right. Yeah. So uh, would it potentially perform even better if you had the pH up at 6'2", 6'3"? This is just an educated guess at this point. I don't know if I would say it would perform better. It might be something like it might get there quicker. You, you might yes. accelerate right. the soil ecology and, and keep it there longer. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, because I'm thinking about sustainable all the time. You're doing this, and you're talking about um, calculating the return and you know the efficiency in year one and make you know actually getting more for your money. But I'm thinking you're going to have to have many years of the research because I think if anything, you're going to show that over the long term mm-hmm. is what really is going to make a difference or not, not just the first year and what happens then. Oh, yeah. Because this this is when you know, and Dudley introduced us to this theoretically in his own country boy system. The same thing that he does, mm-hmm. and we've been talking about it somewhat. His crimper has happened a lot more. He cheats a little bit to, with the glyphosate, but it it is a great example of how that can be done. It opened my eyes when I would have oh, been yeah. scared to even try it, and he's proved it to us already. I just found over time that uh, I got tired of, you know, every time I did a soil test, I was noticing that my organic matter was dwindling. Yep. My cation exchange capacity, you know, was was dwindling. Um, everything was dwindling in my soils. And then you'd have to spend a bunch of money and time trying to correct that. And then you go and disc it again. And 
wild ryegrass. Don't yeah, put more don't nitrogen fertilizer out, and you know, making your pH go down even more. And so then I just, uh, you know, started reading what other people were doing and came up with that poor man's approach, uh, which is better, but uh, you know, not spraying, uh, not you know, not disking at all. Uh, that it just seems to be the way to go. You know, I've, I've stuck a pH meter in a compost pile. And it's always right there near seven. And it, it, it seems very similar uh, with with regenerative agriculture. Uh, I kind of think of it in layman's terms as uh, it's almost like you're creating like a compost layer right there on the surface underneath that thatch. Speaking of thatch, Mac, you got another question. Do you think, I guess this is for Luke, do you think that the four-year study would be a long enough study to see the effects that it has with a soil test in like the micro macro and pH. And I mean, or do you think it needs to be, would it take longer to see results? I certainly do not think we're going to have the full picture in the time frame of a three to four year project, but I believe and hope that we will start to see trends developing. There you go. If, if we're Is not in there- the, I think the, the big kind of implication for that is if we're not seeing trends starting to develop by the end of three or four years, what are we going to tell hunters, food plotters, land managers? Are we going to say, Hey, this is a big gamble. You go three or four years, the startup costs, you got to make some compromise. You got to make changes to your food plot program that is established. We know it's working. You're killing deer on it. You're growing deer on it, but maybe it takes 10 years to do it. I mean, that's a big gamble and a lot. I don't, from my perspective, I don't think a lot of hunters are going to be willing to take a gamble and say, Hey, you know, it might take, if it takes 10 years for an unknown, is that something I'm willing to do? I don't have 10 years. I don't have 10 years either. (laughs) Come on now, Bobby. (laughs) I mean, you probably got, you got 50 more years. Come on. I hope I have more, but 10 years is a long time. Goodness gracious. But but don't you want to leave uh, your food plot soil in a a better better state for your, kids and grandkids I, I like that idea i do but I, i'm i'm kind of toying with this and i'm thinking when i'm listening to you luke it, it's making sense but i'm thinking there's a lot of guys that their main focus is i want to have the most attractive food plot i can because this guy over here next to me if, if he's going to be doing something if they, I, I need the, i need my deer to stay on my place but yeah. I, i'm going to say that and i don't I, look i'm just this is all theoretical for me i do not know and i'm not trying to pretend to know but i do know that the the top word listening to all these people that really do know more than me is diversity that's a huge thing and so that's my point in this is that so and he's not coming in you know, waving a flag, just saying this is the only way I go. But it is is so fascinating, and it's so theoretically how we should be kind of our true north in this that I think it would be really smart for people to learn from this and create some things in some of their plots in this manner, along with the traditional. Then they can teach themselves. And the worst-case scenario, they have created a more diverse habitat environment. I thought about, too— uh, you know, as this unveils and you get more data and you can really talk about it objectively, uh, you know, quantitatively or whatever, is, 
you know, we've also been learning how important the early successional habitats are to everything, honestly, not just cover for turkeys and whatever, just everything. And so there's also, you know, so much really good whitetail food in early successional habitat. So you could combine the practice of trying to maintain areas and try to keep them in that early successional habitat with the, without chemicals. You could do it without chemicals, you know, pretty easy. Mm-hmm. With chopper, bush hog, you know, uh, there's cutters and stuff that can do it. But also improve the quality of the forage in that early successional. And then you've got, you know, you're not even sacrificing some field that's a food plot to do that. You're turning widespread areas into it. I just feel like we're going to learn in the next five years how to do all of that and the equipment and the know-how and help average landowner really take it up a notch with other than the food plot. We've got that part down, and obviously this is something cutting edge. But I'm excited about, you know, expanding. I, you know, I'm just talking about me. It's, it's helped me so much listening to everybody. I can't wait to get in the field and do things that I've learned. Lanny, what about this excites you? I'm just listening to everything, like the, the thought of, uh, you know, working the land and benefiting the wildlife and benefiting the land at the same way because is is completely intriguing, you know, because you feel like even if you have to rotate crops, you're depleting the soil with the current practices that we're doing. And then you're always trying to play catch up by amending or liming or, oh, my gosh, I got to put this in there. <clears throat> it makes me questions like, why in the hell are we doing that in the first place? Maybe I'm not supposed to be saying that, but I mean – like, how do we get here in the first place, you know, with these, the way that, that we're doing it? Because this just seems like it's smarter, not only smarter, but a better uh, option for long-term and sustainability and biodiversity. When, when Dudley was talking about a minute ago, and I tried to, I didn't get my, you know, me, I'm trying to, I talked on top of him. But on top of what created his uh, thirst for this with the soil chemistry and the biomass and, I mean, the invasives, I mean, the well, I guess it's at Italian ryegrass. What's the wild ryegrass? The so yeah. yeah, it is so invasive. And anywhere you till and till and till, subsequent falls it's and gonna, winters, it's going to be there. Yes. It's going to take over. It's going to be all. And so, you know, where I have uh, a couple, you know, because of Dudley's influence, and we've done it a time or two before, planted without, you know, disturbing the soil at all with the with the drill. Uh, you don't get it uh, almost none, and I'm sure the the thatch. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, mulch. Mulch, yeah. Yeah, so for weeds. Germination. Yeah, and yeah. so and all of a sudden you don't have this whole huge, you know, field of worthless grazing, you know. I do have one. How does fire fit in? Does fire fit in this in, in any way? Oh, yeah, got to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely it does. There we go. <laughs> there we here. go. Yeah, good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely on the same wavelength of fire in the old field, early successional plant communities, and we haven't mentioned that yet, but that's another – portion of this project that we're doing we're evaluating all of the same soil metrics plant metrics deer and turkey metrics economic metrics there you in go. old fields mm-hmm. also with we're, we've got multiple old field treatments with fire and disking and herbicide and um because if you think about it from nature's perspective if your goal is keeping the soil covered 365 yeah. living roots in the ground 365 diversity of plants annuals and perennials different heights growth forms all of that well, it sounds like we just described an old field. Yeah. I mean, you walk out there and in a lot of the old fields we manage, you'll have 70 plant species growing in a 10-yard radius. 
You know, I mean, it's extremely diverse and there's lots of great beneficial plants out there, insects for deer and turkey and all sorts of stuff. So that's certainly something that we're going to be looking at. I think there's going to be a lot of value to evaluating that, especially next to food plots. One thing that I was curious about. So as you're doing the regenerative side, not the conventional, so you're building the soil. I'm interested to know how it affects, like Mr. Talk said, like your invasives, how it affects like your unwanted and also your native plants. I mean, because at one point it sounds like there's a lot of ways you can slice it, like you said. So you could get three years down this and look at your field and you have all these natives Would that. And you might have to change your your plan or your goal based on, hey, these natives are doing really good. Instead of, you know, adding in a cereal grain with some clovers and brassicas, I'm going to manage for the natives. Will mm-hmm. y'all be, or I guess, how will you determine to like stick to your plan in this study? When you, what do you mean when you say natives? So, you mean like in our old fields or in the food plots? Yeah, in the food plots. So like it, it, I, I would assume as you build that soil health that, you know, the weeds and also your native species will be coming back probably stronger than ever each year. And I'm just wondering if that, like you're still going to crimp those down and plant cereal grain blends. In yeah, those. The, the objective, at least the idealistic objective of the regenerative approach is that you are growing enough biomass via the seeds that you plant out of your drill that you are able to smother competition. And it's not that having some ragweed or some uh, pigweed or some mayor's tail or whatever in your food plot is a bad thing. And a lot of times I actually like having those species in there um, in moderation. But the idea, whether you're managing conventionally or regeneratively, you don't want so much weed competition, be it native or non-native, that the species that you spent money to plant and establish are being outcompeted. And so the idea with the regenerative approach is that you grow all of this biomass and some of the species in regenerative mixes, you know, they serve diverse roles in the soil and in terms of deer preference and diet quality. But some of them, they are in there and they're designed to produce biomass so that when you do bring that crimper through, they crimp terminate really well and they make a thick mulch to lay over. If you think about uh, a weed seed, whether it's native seed uh, a native species or a non-native species, the vast majority of the weeds, grasses, forbs, whatever, are much smaller than even a clover seed, even a small clover seed. And the energy that's required from that weed species to germinate and grow up through the mulch layer is often more than that seed has on board. But the larger seeds, even the clovers, cereal grains, soybean cowpeas, these really large seeded things, they've got a lot of onboard energy. And so when they, when they germinate underneath the mulch layer, they've got enough energy stored up inside the seed that they can get above that mulch layer and start photosynthesizing. Hmm. Prior to, you know, and the, the weed competi- the problem species, most of them aren't going to have enough energy for that. So once you get that mulch layer established, that's a huge part of kind of jump-starting your regenerative food plot program, especially because we're not using herbicides. So it's very difficult for us to deal with competition. The other side of dealing with competition from a regenerative approach is these regenerative food plots that we're planting have 5, 10, 15 different species. Unless you're planting five clovers or five grasses or five of the same functional group, you're never going to be able to have an effective herbicide cocktail to control weeds Mm -hmm. and not be killing stuff that you planted. So the idea with your regenerative is produce 
enough biomass of species that you want, that you planted, that it's smothering the stuff that you don't want and basically eliminating your need for herbicide. Hmm. And it might take a couple of years for us to get there, you know, because all these sites, you know, they were site history varies dramatically across our study sites. Some were fallow ag fields, some were pasture, some were, I mean, you name it, we planted into it. And we dealt with those differently. You know, we didn't just come up with a standard approach. This is how we're going to plant every regenerative food plot. But um, site history varies dramatically. And I think because of that, at least in year one, we're seeing a lot of variation in establishment success in our regenerative food plots. If I had to sum it up, I'd say that our conventional food plots are all performing very well. They're all, if we're on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is just the most cranking food plot you've ever seen with waist high species that you planted, very little weed coverage. And one is just solid bahia grass or whatever was there beforehand. Most of our conventional plots are somewhere in the six to 10 range, you know, so they're very consistently good, good to great. Our regenerative food plots, some of them are at a one and some of them are at a 10. And I think it's just because we don't, we're not using as many of the synthetic tools in the regenerative plots that we are in the conventional plots. We didn't deal with uh, competition as much. We're not dealing with, you know, all of the things that we talked about earlier that differentiate regenerative versus conventional. And for those reasons, I think this what requires a, you know, a three to four year project. We need time to get the system working to prime the pump and get the soil ecology established and get good establishment success with the species that we plant once we get the mulch layer and once we get, you know, on down the line. And it would not be a fair evaluation at all to stop this after year one or look at our data from year one and be like, oh, this is what we saw and this is the gospel and Mm -hmm. take it to the bank, you know? So quick question would be for someone who is really interested in this, is the crimper an absolute, or could they test the uh, theory? And even though it might not be as perfect with the bush hog, yeah, I think is, so. Is there a possibility? Because I mean, I guess the if the context was to get a really good thatch, I think that's what to me looking at it. Every place I might look at has a completely different cover. Dudley taught me that with his technique, and so you know. With his, it's actually seed, then bush hog. But it's, mm-hmm. he's already, you know, he's already uh, gotten it, you know, so uh, degraded already that it it doesn't have such a thatch that it prevents the seed from coming up through mm-hmm. it. It just it, it's a perfect medium. But what you're talking about would require still a drill mm-hmm. and through a thatch. But I'm just thinking if someone had the right plant thatch. I'm sure they'd want to let it decay to a certain amount, you know, and not while it's fresh and green and need to go and turn brown. Yeah. Um, then it would work with the bush hog. I think, I think given the right species that you were mowing down to start with. Yeah, absolutely. You know. I think there are, I think there are plenty of situations, examples, whatever, where a bush hog would do as, just as good of a job, maybe even better than a crimper. But I think a crimper pretty universally is going to perform well. Right. There are going to be situations where a bush hog ain't going to cut it, you know, but they're in a crimper is pretty universally going to perform well, especially with 
when you've got a lot of cereal grains in your cool season mix, hairy vetch is one that a crimper crimp terminates really well. And keep in mind, there's a lot of the species that we're planting in these, you know, uh, in our regen food plots that don't crimp ter- terminate super well. Generally, the ones that crimp terminate well are the ones with, you know, they're they got larger stems. They're supporting a really big vascular system running from the roots up at the top, and severing that vascular system is very effective when you're running, you know, a three h three eighths inch piece of steel over it that weighs, you know. 2,500 pounds or whatever. But a lot of the species don't crimp terminate as well. And one of the other big advantages I see to a crimper versus a bush hog, and if you're planting beforehand, certainly not as big of a deal, but uh, the crimper lays down everything in a very uniform direction, and your your cutting wheels and your coulters on your drill very nicely just slide through there, drop the seed, and move on. If you're not, if you're just broadcasting, then I think, you know, a lot of times you, you have just fine results. Well, I think about bush hogs, they, they leave a pile and then an open spot. It would need, you know, it almost need to be something kind of left it all in an even batch too. So let me, let me ask this. So when we talk about the, these regen plots, very interesting. You're typically talking about a cool planted annual and then a warm season annual. So let's not forget that a guy could still have perennials. And and oh yeah, by, by having a you know a clover field that he's trying to manage, he's not turning that soil over. Mm-hmm. So he's in essence he's kind of in between there. I, I guess somewhere somewhere in right. there. Yeah. Yep. So what would what would be so say I have a food plot? What would be the first step time of year to make a regenerative food plot? Yeah. When and what do we need, <clears throat> first thing we need to do? Well, I think, and this is just my opinion based on observations and experience that I've had in the field planting food plots regeneratively versus conventionally. Um, And really in an ideal world, I'd want to hold opinion on this until at the end of the project, because I don't know. But if I had to make a prediction on what we were going to see, I would say that if I was just dead set on planting a regenerative food plot and I wanted to do it for X, Y, and Z reasons, whatever those reasons are, I'd want to start in the fall rather than the spring. Because especially down here in the deep south where our growing seasons are so long and we've got so many different native, non-native, whatever plant species out there that vigorously grow throughout the growing season, competition is going to be much harder to deal with this time of year when you're uh, for a warm season planting than it is in general for a cool season planting. So when we're kind of starting, we started uh, this project with warm season plantings 2023. So we started in the warm season. We didn't have that really thick thatch layer established when we planted our warm season plots. So that left a lot of room for weed species to come up and germinate and present competition problems. I think if we had started the project in you know the fall and got a really robust food plot implemented with all of the, you know, the clovers and the brassicas and the, you know, on down the line, I think it would have made a a thicker, whatever thatch layer for us to plant into in the spring, which would have suppressed weeds better for the upcoming growing season. But we, you know, that's, you're just losing maybe four or five months. I don't think, I don't think we're going to be, um, I don't think there's going to be negative consequences for starting in the spring relative to the fall when we get to next year. You know what I mean? I think next year it's all going to come out in the wash. 
But if you're just starting, you're trying to you know optimize your efficiency and how much money you're spending, establishment success of the plants, I'd probably start in the fall, mainly because of the competition problems and suppressing weeds. So our first step is go out there and crimp. Well, it depends on it depends on what's if you there. got a crimper. <laughs> yeah, if you if you got a crimper, and if the species that you're planting into can successfully be crimp terminated, mm-hmm. the vast majority of uh, things that are just growing out there in the seed bank are not going to success. Or you're not going to crimp terminate them. Gotcha. You know, and so one of our um, try not to get, I'll try not to get too off in the weeds here, but one of literally our literally <laughs> one of our regenerative treatments allows the use of herbicides so we've got two different regenerative treatments we've got one that there is no herbicides no fertilizer no tillage none of it and another one another side-by-side plot allows the use of herbicides when necessary to deal with competition and so in that plot like this fall when we plant that one it's getting a burn down herbicide uh, application to deal with the competition that's in that plot now because if your objective is maximizing the availability of high quality deer food and keeping deer in your food plot, then you want to deal with competition, you know, but if your objective is soil health and the micro, the um, quality composition of the microbial community, then maybe lay off the herbicide. But if we're being honest here, the priority of most food plotters is food in the food plot, right? So we want to have one of our treatments allow, we want one of our treatments to allow us um, to maximize food in a regenerative framework. We're not going to just be out there haphazardly, you know, spraying glyphosate right. everywhere, trying to kill everything when it's not needed. But when it is absolutely needed to get us the best establishment success for that incoming food plot, we'll burn it down with glyphosate. Are you guys seeing that, like, when if you use a herbicide, is that negatively affecting the pH? or what, what's What's going on there that we're trying to get away from? Other than just the use of herbicides and the expense, is there are there other things we're trying to avoid? Yeah, there there are. Um, one of the big issues with and there's you know so many different herbicides out there for different you know applications control different things, but obviously glyphosate is one of the big ones. And there are there's a number of things that happen in the soil when you spray glyphosate. And there's very good literature out there to back up all of this. One of those things from the uh, biological side of things in the soil is that glyphosate inhibits certain microbes and it promotes other microbes. You know, there's, I mean, literally billions of microbes in a teaspoon of soil, extremely diverse, hundreds, thousands of different species of microbes. We don't even, we can't even begin to understand how each of those interacts with each other, let alone the plants, let alone, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. Um, but when you spray glyphosate, it, uh, inhibits, populations of some of those microbes and promotes other microbes. Some of those microbes that it promotes are disease-causing microbes, mm-hmm. fungus, uh, some nematodes that kind of can lead to other disease issues. The other big one that we hear about a lot is chelation, chemical chelation. So when you spray glyphosate, it can essentially um, bind certain chemicals, certain minerals in the soil and make them plant unavailable. So, you know, but at the same time, like, it are are the issues that are potentially presented by spraying glyphosate from a soil biology perspective and potentially from a soil chemical perspective, are they outweighed 
by something you get from managing regeneratively. I don't know. And there's not great data out there on that. And that's kind of why we're sitting here on this couch talking about it. Because that's one of the things that we're going to document. So much to learn. Oh, so, yeah. So fascinating. Preston, y'all got yeah. so much going on over there. And we, y'all, we do. And y'all are, tr- y'all are really trying to figure out and help deer hunters and, and gamekeepers to yeah. manage their properties. I just take my hat off to you. Well, thanks. This, this is a really, uh, like, like you've heard, it's really complex. But one thing we, we really hadn't touched on, too, was um, a property that Luke and I managed and other grad students before him. We're dealing with old uh, clay flat soil mm-hmm. and it seems like every year it's either too dry or too wet and i started thinking years ago wouldn't it be great if we had a thatch layer wouldn't it be great if we were dealing with the water better so we either don't have enough of it or it's either pooled up on top um so could there be another way we could manage the system where every single year you know, it would be resilient. We could always get in that field and always plant something. And so that being something that was literally burning me up every fall, having to mm-hmm. deal with this, just gritting my teeth, what are we going to do? And then there's just more and more talk about these regenerative techniques and seeing how people, examples of, hey, in this particular field with regenerative agriculture, it rained X amount of inches. And within two hours, the water completely infiltrated through and we're able to get in the field. Also looking at soil temperature, you've all seen that on YouTube, you know, this soil is 130 degrees and this one with the thatch is 88 degrees, you know, ideal for, I just started thinking, we got to really start evaluating this kind of thing. And at that point in time, it wasn't about some of these other reasons. It was just very matter of factly, I need an alternative way so that we can get in the field every fall, regardless of too much rain or too little rain, to get a food plot planted. Hmm. Lanny, you look like you got a question. Well, I was going back to the conversation about getting one established, you know, in the fall, because y'all were talking about this. I'm like, oh, I want to do one. You know, that's the first thing. So mm-hmm. uh, spraying, I get that, help you get started out. And then I would uh, broadcast my specific blend on top of that uh, and then – Bush hog or crimp, or would I would would that work? I'm just trying to think of ways to get started with this without a crimper, you know, and, and kind of getting started quick. Yeah, certainly, I think so. I think someone has something to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've just pointed. Dudley's got a way already for that part yeah, yeah, yeah. to that question. It isn't all the way, but it is. It is a technique. I mean, if you have a crimper. Yeah, but I mean, so in theory, we could go spray these spots, broadcast our seed, and then clip it high. Uh, and leave that thatch over it, and then we could kind of get started that way. Yeah, you could even clip it low. So, you know I mean? but yeah. if you if you if you uh, crimp and you have this thatch, uh, don't you need for it to get through uh, the the degradation process where it's not green anymore, or could you do it immediately? No, you can. You could literally crimp and then right behind the crimper drill, or you could do it vice versa. It depends on. There's a hundred different ways to skin this cat, you know, in the terms of the timing right. of your management actions. And a lot of it's going to depend on when is the time to plant that's going to give you the best success for those species that you're planting. Because, like, if you're uh, planting a warm season plot into standing cool season biomass, you're, the time in that you crimp to get the best termination of your standing cool season crop 
might not perfectly line up with the best time to plant based on soil moisture, based on day length, whatever. So you might drill, you know, you might drill into standing biomass without crimping and wait two weeks. And then once those two weeks go by, now your cereal grains are in the dough stage and they're going to successfully crimp terminate. And then you run the crimper over it and the the, yeah, okay. the seeds that you plant that are still young enough, they're still small mm-hmm. enough that you're not going to significantly damage enough of them to adversely affect your plot. Hmm. There, uh, there are folks doing this on a much smaller scale, uh, and they're actually, it, it kind of looks silly, but it works. They're actually using the same implement that people used to use to make uh, alien crop circles. <laughs> Yeah. So you're just oh. basically. Oh, that's where you got. Out. That's where you got yours, Dudley, right? You've got a two by four <laughs> with, with some rope. Uh, on. You know, yeah. They may put a little piece of metal down there that kind of damages the grass, and then you're holding it up with ropes, and you step on it, and then you go forward and do it again, and you're laying all that stuff down. Hmm. Um, but it, it's just so interesting to me. We. Uh, it, it actually reminds me of another agricultural treatment called uh, rotational grazing, yeah. uh, you know, where these cattle guys are going in there and you move your cows in and they step on everything and they more or less terminate that vegetation. Uh, and then they move them out of there really quick, move the electric fence down and then stuff, green stuff grows. But the theory is, you know, you're not using herbicides and you're not flipping the dirt over, um, which is pretty cool because rewind 10,000 years ago, that exact same thing was happening uh, with our bison out in the plains. Uh, they were they were stepping on that stuff, terminating it, pooping and peeing everywhere, the vegetation would break down almost like a compost pile and then they would move on to a new area and, and new plants would come up. So I feel like we're just mimicking an older natural system that has worked for a long time. Um, and, and keep in mind, there's farmers doing this thing, you know, yeah, they've, they've got that. a crimper where the front end loader would be and they've got a drill on the back and they're well, just making so do one, one pass. Well, Man, I time. can get into that. Uh, You know, we were talking to Todd Amonrod on the the phone the other day, and he says people are doing this in South America, you know, thousands and thousands of acres uh, using this same technique. Of course, it's ag, and I don't think they're using as many species, but it's very, very similar. So this seems like uh, probably something that was done before the chemical fertilizers and the herbicides came around in the first place. Yeah, I mean, possibly. I, I think a lot uh, of the, you know, and there's there's farmers up north that are saying, you know, I I'm barely using fertilizer, and I'm on year ten, or I'm using no fertilizer at all, and I'm still growing two hundred plus bushel corn. Uh, that's good news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, am I am I right? I don't know if you're right, but it sounds good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm. Got what he was talking about before: less input, more yield. Normally, Mac yeah. would be fact checking you, but Mac's yeah. got—he's worried. Looking at his watch, he's got to run here in just a second. But 
I, I, is he, what, I think he, the, his comment about South America, we were on a call and heard somebody talking about that. Are y'all aware of it, uh, people practicing something like this down in that part of the world? Yeah, and it's big in Australia. Too. I mean, it's big all over the place. I mean, there's yeah. some big farms in Australia doing it. Is there a region of the United States that it is working better? I mean, is like this a really good southern thing or is this more of a Midwestern thing? Or? I don't. I don't have any hard numbers to shed light on that, but I will say that most of the farmers that you hear really phenomenal success stories from are somewhere in the northern Midwest, in the Ohio, Michigan, North Dakota. Dakotas. Is that just Dakotas? Because of the the freeze and thaw? Does, I mean, I would assume that plays a pretty big factor on. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And a lot of those guys, they're farming big acreage and they've got big cattle operations at the same time, and they're able to really accelerate the process with the use of you know essentially mob grazing their cattle i mean they'll put some of them are putting five hundred thousand pounds per acre of cows on there and they're moving their cows multiple times a day into different paddocks and so like the if you think about the amount of urine and you know manure that's coming out of hundreds of thousands of pounds of cows per acre per day relative to a deer it's a huge difference. Yeah. And that biological activity in the urine and the manure from cattle is a huge, you know, jump starter to get the system really cranking. So I think I think there's a lot of reasons why those guys it seems like it's very successful up there. And it's not that it can't be successful other places, but I think that their climate and just the tools in their tool belt really set them up for success. So what I'm hearing, and Toxie, I know you need to go. So if, if, if I want to make sure you get a chance to have a last comment in here if you I'm need. Good. But, my, my comment is wow, and my admiration. Yeah, let's love go do it. one. Love it. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds to me like a guy could go ahead and plant the way he might have been planning to plant this fall, but this next spring. He could go into the spring when his wheat's beginning to bolt and all that, and that's when he could get that first really good effort at crimping uh, and laying something over, and then he could come back and plant uh, some protein peas, drill protein peas or drill some game changers, uh, soybeans, or something along those lines and get that process started. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Bronson, so you know um, – he he's a grad student. He's got four more years of this. It, at least it, four. It what's at what <laughs> level do you teach him your patented it depends answer? I was he hasn't, ask that. He hasn't uh, doesn't sound like he knows. Oh, that. he says it quite often. He just hasn't said it today. But yeah, he'll play that card. Mm. It's well, coming. Well, I gotta say, talking through all this, that's the one thing I could hear you ringing in the bag. It's gonna depend. This is super site specific, and according to what your plans are gonna be and everything else. But what a better way to you know look at this stuff. I like the fact that I mean I think we all need to look at how we can do things better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and improving soil health really seems to be something that people are taking an interest in, and it, it, evidently it is very, very important. And I think we've touched on a little bit of this, and obviously not this deep, but, you know, of our strategy of, you know, trying to drill brassicas in clover fields, you know, in the fall, and then those kind of things. It, it seems to be kind of akin to it. Well, we've um, over, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a drill yeah, to do that. You could that, oversee, oversee the, 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 the brassicas you know, in, in the clover patches. Yeah. Uh, and then you wouldn't really terminate, though, your clover patch, I don't guess. No, ever. Mm-hmm. Much clover as possible. Right. I'm right. with you there, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Luke, I'm just real impressed. Yeah, I can't wait to see what the study. My gut tells me that uh, it's going to make the the ground better and therefore the wildlife better. I mean, if you, you're talking about the, the upper Midwest, I mean, we're all you know lust over the deer up there. I mean, it's because they got great soil and great crops. Uh, so it seems like you know having a, a broader diversity of things, biodiversity is always better. So, well, look, we've got a trivia question. Uh-oh. Is it that time already? It's, it's getting hey, to be that time. we already talked for this long? Yeah, yeah. We've, it's oh, been a while. These guys started yet. So, Richie, we, we've got a – Luke. S- sorry, Mac had to leave, and so I'm, I'm the fill-in guy. Yeah, yeah, Mac. You'll do, Richie. I know. So here's the way this thing worked, <laughs> Luke. We've got a – if you like, if somebody could have gone on and left a review of our podcast, good or bad, they that person win, has a chance to win a prize. If you guys – we're going to let you all put your heads together, answer this question correctly. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Richie now. We're putting a lot of pressure on you, Luke. Well, is this a joint answer? How yeah, are we doing yeah, this? You, y'all, y'all, you can phone a friend can, if you need we can to. deliberate. Okay. But Bronson yeah. is not usually very helpful in this. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, so we're playing. You're playing for uh, Lunchbox 13. Oh. I uh, left a review. Love the show. Great info, great guest, and always entertaining. But I got to know, when is it my day to borrow the LS tractor? Tell him to come on. <laughs> Lunchbox, swing on by. We'll, we'll get you hooked time. up. And Lunchbox might really swing by. Hey, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and the prize is a Moultrie uh, six-volt rechargeable battery. There we go. That's a great battery. Mm-hmm. All right, so here we go. Everybody knows Minnesota's tagline is the land of a thousand lakes. No, no, no. Let's uh, start this question. over. Let's start so this So this over. is not the right question. <laughs> no, no, you misread it. It's start over, please. Everybody knows <laughs> Minnesota's tagline is the land of a thousand lakes. It, that's 10,000 lakes. Exactly. I thought that's what he said the first time. No, he said a thousand well, lakes. Mm. All right. Here we go. So. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Minnesota's tagline. <laughs> everybody knows Minnesota's tagline is the land of 10,000 lakes. Is this the most lakes of any state? And if not, who has more? Wisconsin. Ooh. Oh, look at him. So Man, fast. Him. But, look at that. Uh, do y'all want to talk among yourselves there? Is that your that? final answer? You're feeling good about this, I'm, it sounds I, like. I'm very confident that Wisconsin has more lakes than Minnesota does, but there may be a state with more lakes than Wisconsin. But I don't have a better guess than that, so I'm sticking with Wisconsin. But you, go. Can, you can go outweigh with me with seniority, so. No. So here we go. Uh, is it Florida? So we got here. Uh, so Wisconsin is up there with 14,000, but Alaska has oh. 3 million. Uh, well, you know, That's I should have known fair. that. It's so big. You got it right. Uh, Wisconsin, in, in terms of Wisconsin. Yeah. In the continental U.S. Mm, yeah. You got that. So yeah. the lower lunchbox wins. Yeah, lunchbox, we think we'll hit, give you hit that. The hit, hit the bell. Hit the There we go. There we go. But I like how you knew about Wisconsin because Minnesota's acting like we got all the lakes and Wisconsin's next door going. Was Florida even on the board? I don't know, Bob. Looked this question up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How'd it go, Bob? But you got to read the question right. It's the land of 10,000 lakes, not 1,000. We got the point across. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows. <laughs> Except Richie. Except Richie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Dudley, have you got another question for him? I did do an Ask Dudley for Luke, if y'all want to do that. An Ask Dudley or a quick fire? 
I mean, a rapid fire. Excuse oh, me. excuse me. Yeah. So uh, here, here's where we we turn it over to Dudley for just a few minutes. He'll have a few questions for you. We already know everything about Bronson. We're going to yeah. learn some yeah, more yeah. about Luke. Yep. And this is brought to you by friends at Springfield Armory. Hey. And, uh, rapid fire. And rapid fire. Go ahead, Dud. All right, Luke. Uh, are you ready? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, white socks or dark socks? Dark socks. Can't y'all see me? Yeah, I can see them. Je- jelly or jam? Ooh, jelly. Pancakes or waffle? Oh, if they're blueberry pancakes, pancakes. Mm. On a cheeseburger, would you rather have American or cheddar? Mm, cheddar. But that wouldn't Pick be my first one. choice. <laughs> Pick one cereal grain, wheat or cereal rye? Wheat. Red oaks or white oaks? Mm, where am I at? Around, uh, southeast. Uh, we'll take White Oaks. All right. Deer hunt, Mississippi or back home? Mm, back home. Wow. Would you <laughs> rather own a 200-acre farm by yourself or or split 1,000 acres with your four best buddies? Oh, man. Given who my four best buddies are, I'd rather have it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. La- last but not least, you were gifted a new LS tractor. Who would you trust more to run it, Bronson or Steve? <laughs> Bronson, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. Thank you, Dudley. That's right. Right. That really was, that was good. good stuff. Well, is there is there some, a question that – you guys driving over here and said, these knuckleheads ought to ask us about this. Let's talk about it. Is there something we didn't ask you we should have? I, I'm not going to say there was a question. I, I would add a comment about it. If people are interested in this, th- this t- two ge- deer guys here, and we're just getting into it, uh, there's a lot of good information, uh, especially on YouTube. If you're trying to understand what is this roller crimper and terminating yeah. and what, there are so many great examples from reputable sources uh, of how in a three to five year time frame, they had a problem. They were doing everything right from a conventional standpoint, but they had to change for whatever reason, because of drought or finances or whatever. And so many people have just documented the story of how they've gone completely conventional to regenerative. And it's worked for them. And like we started, Bobby, we're not sitting over here saying, we recommend you do this. We're just saying we're going to evaluate it and and be able to measure everything and provide the the pros and cons. And every single year that we go forward, we hope that we can answer deeper and deeper, more complicated questions with confidence and with evidence that we're collecting here. And hopefully in about five years, we'll know what we're talking about, huh? Hey, I can't wait to see what goes on. Well, we want you to come back. Yeah, multiple can you times come back year. next year and get a little update? Yeah. Right. And, and we're going to start one. Yeah, we need to. We're going to. And and look, uh, if there's any uh, biologic seeds you guys want to try, you just need to let us know. We, we can... know a guy. Yeah. We do know a guy. <laughs> yeah. We, we came in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> they must have heard the warehouse seeds. Yeah, they, right. they must have. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, guys, this is, I've just kind of hung on every word and, uh, you know, Bronson never disappoints. Well, I shouldn't say that. But for the most part, Bronson <laughs> brings some – he's always bringing us something that we can learn from. So We appreciate y'all and the relationship we have over there really is and what y'all are doing for the white-tailed deer. So. 
Thank you all so much, as yeah. always. Thank you for having us. Really yeah, cool. No, we know we appreciate it. Lanny, is there anything else? We, Richie, have we forgotten anything? I, we got to build a roller crimper. I mean, I think that's what's next on the on the list around here. Maybe we can get LS to well, this is a, will will a roller crimper kill fescue? Mm, no, damn it, that's gonna be gly. Yep, <laughs> lots of it. Yep, that's what we were doing. Just wondering. Mm. Yeah, why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine, and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland. <laughs>